Hunterfly final in Tokyo. No one in the stands. It's crickets. You ripped the semifinal swim. Feeling great. Standing behind the blocks. What's going through your head? Oh, my God. I have to go. You have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> Where are you going? I have to swim that. <laughs> Welcome back to the Social Kick Podcast. I'm Brian Lundquist. We got a full crew, Dr. John Mullen, Luke Paddington, and Maggie McNeil. Welcome, Maggie. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. What's going on? How are you? Where are you? Well, I'm currently in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, at the University of Michigan, uh, as we're getting ready for NCs next week. So that's super exciting. You know, one thing that I've always thought is odd about um, the perspective that we have uh, is, like, I grew up in the South. Uh, where we live in California now, it's kind of like the middle of the U.S. Michigan is, uh, to me, like really far north. But like, do Canadians? What do Canadians think about that? What's south? <laughs> do you like look at? Oh, it's it's like warm here. Well, it's funny enough because although I'm from Canada, I only live like a three-hour drive from Ann Arbor. So it's, it's kind of been like a joke on like along my teammates that I live closer than most of them and they're national and I'm considered an international student. So everyone finds that really funny. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. What so um who who's who on your team is from the furthest away uh from Ann Arbor? Do you know? Uh, I wanna say are we talking in America or are we talking like internationally as well? Ah, internationally. Um right now we have uh, some Australians and uh, some swimmers from Hong Kong. And I think that's, and uh, Gus from Brazil. So I think that's the farthest we have right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah. They're, they're all turned around um, with like normal Christmas in the summer and everything. Yeah. You can't trust those people. <laughs> <laughs> so what's going on with training right now? Obviously you just came off big tens uh, like, you know, some strong performances, what looked like probably 90 plus percent of your best times there. I mean, like, like pretty close to, but not, you know, quite at best times and still winning a few events. What's your reaction to big tens and kind of what, what are you doing right now? I think we were just really grateful as a team to be able to have big tens. It was our last normal meet last year before everything went crazy. I mean, today it was today last year that we found out that NC2As were canceled and that we all kind of had to go home and couldn't train at Michigan anymore. So I think we were just definitely grateful that we could have a meet and kind of get back into the swing of things. But overall, I think that was just our main goal is just to get back into racing and just have fun and enjoy it. Um, Cause we didn't know that that would be the end of it last year. Yeah. What was the team reaction last year when that news came out? Um, did the captain step up? Did Mike bottom talk with the team? I'm, I'm assuming they all did, but I don't think we've talked to many people about what that, environment at the college scene at an elite college program was when that news did a, a break yeah i mean there were definitely tears i my heart broke for the seniors who wouldn't get to go to their last nc2a championships or for those seniors that ended up qualifying for their first nc2a championships and couldn't go um but i think it was really mike bottom that kind of helped everyone to get through it he really used his experiences uh with the boycott in 1980 to kind of show everyone that there is a positive side uh to the whole shutdown and that you can make the best of it I mean, it definitely did draw up some feelings from him. I haven't seen him that emotional, I don't think, ever. Um, but I think that was really what we needed uh, at that time, and he really came through. Yeah, you know, um, it, I can understand how it would be such an emotional time. And then, and then 
you know, it seems like we've gone through this period where there's there's kind of the okay, like we'll just take everything day by day. And then at some point you get hopeful because Olympics officially get pushed, but you know, there's a vaccine and we can see that maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel. Do you feel like you've kind of made it past that point and are able to look at this summer uh, with expectations that the Olympics are going to happen, that, you know, everything's going to move forward and that you'll be there standing, you know, behind the blocks ready to race, or is it still kind of a day by day? Let's, let's just, you know, take one day at a time. Well, I definitely think when everything originally happened, it was kind of hour to hour, day by day, and it slowly graduated to week by week, uh, and then slowly back to day by day again. Um, but I think now I can start to look a little bit more long term, maybe month by month, but I don't think I would go so far as to push my luck and say I could plan for the summer already, uh, knowing what we know now. But I, d- I know we definitely know a lot more, but I don't want to like have it too set on an idea on not being able to adapt in the future if that plan were to change. Definitely. And obviously every country is going about this differently. And one of the things they're doing differently is just the vaccination rollout. How has Canada um, communicated with you and what is their plan for distribution of vaccines for Olympic athletes? I'm not really sure what Canada's plan is. Um, Regardless, I think we're going to do the best we can. Um, And then they're definitely starting with the health professionals, which is definitely what needs to happen. My my mom got her both first shots. So she's a frontline worker. And then my dad, who's um, in the at-risk age group, he's next on the list. So I think they're slowly starting to get to the groups that need it the most. And then if the athletes get in before we leave for the Olympics, great. And if we don't, that's something that is also great. You're professionally accepted to, for the Canadian Olympic team. What does that mean? And you literally can swim the 100 free, 100 back, 100 fly. What, what does that mean? And how do you know what events you're going to do? Like, Explain to us what's happening for the next three months. I don't know, leading up. I'm confused. Yeah, so it definitely means a lot to be provisionally nominated, especially to my first games. That wasn't really how I anticipated making my first Olympic team, um, but it was definitely exciting nonetheless. And then as for the swimming uh, at the Olympics, so they provisionally nominated the six of us that they um, named already, only in like certain events that we were the highest ranking Canadian um, from world. So you had to like make an A final, I think. Um, so we're only in like one or two events. And then if we wanted to qualify in other events, we have to submit at trials in May. And then there's another, like, I guess a backup trials in June, um, fill out those final spots if they don't get filled in May. Are you in the hundred free? Cause you went 53 one. Um, currently I'm only in the hundred fly just cause I didn't do the hundred free individually. Um, so 100 free will be my main focus. Um, did you lead off? Play. Did you lead off the relay? Oh no, I was anchor. My bad. Okay. Okay. Can you be? Can you have your provisional nomination revoked? That's a legitimate question for sure. Um, we weren't really sure when they told us all. They were like, "You're provisionally nominated," but then we were all kind of like, "What does that mean?" Like. Is this yeah, kind it's, of it's like the you know knights of the shining are they like anointing you with a sword on the shoulders? <laughs> but yeah. it's a good question because Beryl Beryl talks about this as well, and she says right now she's on the Olympic team, but they have until March to solidify that provisional nomination for France or something like that. Remember she said that, and they have somebody can go out and beat us though. So, yeah. Okay. Um. No, that's not how it works with us. I mean, the word when they threw provisional in there, I think that 
raised a lot of questions, but it is indeed set in stone that we will swim those events, um, especially because in those events, we don't really have, we don't have to swim them at trials. Um, so you can focus on other events and trying to qualify in those. Um, but yeah, it's pretty set in stone. With so few racing opportunities, do you feel like you'll take them up on that opportunity to like not swim the 100 fly at trials because you don't have to, or do you go ahead and do it because it's a racing opportunity? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because uh, Rick and I were actually trying to figure that out um, recently when I had to submit what I was going to swim at trials um, because I was like, I'm coming off a two-week quarantine. I don't know how my fly is going to feel. Do I want to go mm -hmm. out there and maybe not post one of the top times and kind of feel maybe not that I have earned my spot? Um, but then on the other side is that's probably my one of my only chances to swim a long course 100 fly before the Olympics. Uh, so currently I'm entered in it. And then if I choose not to swim it, I can decide that uh, later on and then maybe do it um, at the June meet. But currently 100 free and 100 flyer, definitely what I'm swimming uh, at the May meet. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, John. How many 100 flies have you done since 2019 Worlds? Long course, that is. Um, maybe like four or five. Wow. Yeah. Like you said, I can see why that's a tough decision. Like you said, you want to get reps in, but obviously um, you want to have a strong showing, especially at that stage. So I could see why that's a, a tough decision for you. And it's Rick, that's your coach's name, right? Yeah. So you're going to finish NCs and head back home right away and get into quarantine done so you can get into water? Or what's your plan after NCs? Yeah, so this has kind of been the dilemma I've been facing for the last couple mm -hmm. months. It was really challenging to decide when to leave before they had moved trials because mm -hmm. originally they were still supposed to be nine days after NCs, I think. So then I would have had to leave around Big Tens um, so I wouldn't get to do NCs. But now that they've moved it, I might stick around uh, in Michigan until at least like middle of April and then head back uh, just because I don't want to change my training up too much and then um, be able to still have enough time to get back into the swing of things before trials. Hmm. Hey, I want to ask you about the way that you swim the 100 fly and uh, being a back halfer because you have so much speed, right? I mean, you just came off winning 50 – free at big tens among other races uh fastest 50 backstroker ever <laughs> what the hell? 22 22 come on <laughs> so like, with somebody with that much speed tell me about your race strategy long course um and how you you know basically back half the hell out of the race well ironically i wasn't really a sprinter um when i was younger i mean growing up in club like most kids do you swim pretty much every race just to like make sure you have that under your belt. And then when you get older, you specialize. Yeah. So I wouldn't say I really was a sprinter until maybe I got to college. Um, but I've, so I've always done like the 200 fly and the 4am. Like those are my, I would say main events probably when I was younger. So I feel like I've always had the endurance, um, but I feel like the speed has come along uh, more later in my career. Hmm. Yeah. But so how does that influence then the way that you, are swimming it now. I mean, are you saying now that, okay, so you're becoming a sprinter. So does that influence the thinking maybe differently about how you swim, uh, you know, long course races, or are you still, you know, pretty solid on, Hey, I found success, really great success with, you know, just going out super smooth, stomping on it off the wall with a sick underwater and then, you know, building throughout that second 50. Yeah, so I think my final swim at Worlds, I went out in 26.7. That was the fastest I've ever gone out in 100 fly. Uh, usually I go out before that, I went out in like 27.2-ish. 
So I've already seen an improvement in my front end speed, and that's definitely something I'm still working towards for the summer. But that second 50 is pretty impressive. Let's just leave it at that. I think at that Worlds, you were the only one under 30. And, I mean, Rowdy couldn't even figure out who you were in lane five passing out McKean. So, obviously, you have a lot of back-end speed. So, like Brian said, is it pretty much off the turn? You're hitting those underwaters hard and then going for it? Or is there a build on that second 50 still? I feel like there will still always be a build. I mean, by the end of the race, you're always going to want to just put everything else you have into the race, regardless of how hard you've been racing the last the previous what like 25 meters or 75 meters but um I don't know I feel like there's always going to be that build but I think I just want to be as strong as I can the whole second 50. How how are you taught how have you been taught butterfly in the last year and a half in Michigan um you, you come a program is led by a man who's had a lot of success coaching top 100 flyers in his career um, um how how do you see swimming butterfly? I don't think my butterfly in general as a stroke has changed really since I've got mm. to Michigan. I think it's more or less like the tactics of how I'm swimming the race. And then Rick's philosophy has always been coach to your strengths. I mean, that says a lot for itself. He knew I was a good underwater kicker coming in and we've kind of focused even more on that since I've gotten here. Um, and I think just the strategy of it, I've never really had a strategy uh, to swim a hunter fly before. So I think that's probably what makes the biggest difference. He seems to see lots of attention on you. Like, what did he tell you after that 55-8? I mean, I mean, where, where did he see you going? Well, he gave me about two or three seconds to really revel in the joy of that race. And then he was like, okay, you can be better. What? Like, okay. Yeah. So he's always, <clears throat> he's always looking at to see what I can do better. And that's what I think is great about our relationship. So what were the things that he brought up that could be better? And, and we get it. Every every race, no race is perfect, right? Everything can be better. Do you remember what those takeaways were? I think at that point he just said it could be better. Um, we didn't really talk about specifics at that point in time. But I know just from watching the race a couple times I've seen it, um, my touch was really bad. So I know I definitely want to be able to time that better. Um, but there wasn't anything specific like that day that he said you need to fix. But Mike Bottom did predict to you that you were going to win that race, didn't he? Why is that? Well, so the first night we caught third in the foreigner free relay. And I ran into him in the warm down pool after we had gotten our medals. And somehow we somehow the subject of drug testing came up. And I was like, haha, like I've never been drug tested before. And then he replies, you will be when you win tomorrow. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Kind of just brushed it off. And I didn't think too much of it until after the race. He planted that seed in your head. That's what he's doing. He's, he's, he's a magician. You know that. So, Yeah. And obviously, that was a, a huge race. You had Sostrom, the, the world record holder, reigning champ. Um, now, under you know unfortunate circumstances, she is injured and recovering from a broken elbow. So leading into the next Olympics, what are your thoughts on the competitors in the field and how are you trying to just stay in your own lane to focus on what the best Maggie can do? Yeah. I mean, there's some great up and comers, uh, young ones. And then there's still, of course, Sostrom will come back. She's just such a great competitor and I'm not counting her out. Uh, and then there's definitely others. So I think it's definitely hard for me to kind of keep my head in my own lane, but we've just been through such like a roller coaster year and everyone's had different training circumstances and lockdown rules. So I think the most important thing is just going to be for me to go and do the best that I can do. And regardless of that, and just know that this year has been crazier than any of us imagined. And it's just an honor and 
a privilege to be able to go to the Olympics, assuming they happen. Is Canada going to win gold in that relay, finally? I don't know. I don't think I can predict that one. Come on. <laughs> I'm Canadian too, by the way. I spent a lot of my life there. So I'm Roger Foot. Sorry, John. Sorry, Brian. Don't listen to him. He's from the Caribbean. I mean, we <laughs> all hear the accent. Hey, I want to know. Oh, go on, Brian. I was going to change gears on, on goal setting because, um, you know, as a world champion at, at the top, I mean, there's kind of one other rung of the ladder, which is Olympic gold, I think, or perhaps a world record. But the um, I'm wondering how you look at, okay, so you're obviously very skilled and fast in other events. Um, how do you go about goal setting? Do you set goals based on times? Do you set goals based on outcomes? Do you set goals at all? What's your approach? I used to set goals when I was younger, uh, just because in club swimming, we'd set it like sometimes across and just be like, this is this time standard to get to this meet. So I feel like I was always trying to reach those. But I think as I've gotten older in my career, I haven't tended to set like time goals as much. I mean, in practice, Rick will set goals for me to hit in practice or he'll set goals for me at meets. But for me, it's kind of just the process of it. And I think that's what I enjoy the most about coming and swimming yards in the NC2A system is that I'd never swum yards before, so I didn't know what the times meant that I was going. So it kind of gave me a chance to really like love the sport and just focus on the training and the technique and just having fun as opposed to always having something that I always was like, I need to reach this time or this is what I want to do. So I think I definitely enjoyed that. A couple of quick questions. What was your best time in 100 fly long course in 2018? So my best time is from the Junior Pan Packs in Fiji, and it was a 58.38. What was your best time in a 100-meter long course, 100-meter fly, 2019? 55.83. How do you set goals when you drop in three, two and a half, three seconds in a year? What are you doing? Yeah, I honestly don't know. So trials were in April of that year, like nine days after NCs, like they would have been this year. And I hadn't raced long course since I went to school. So I wasn't really sure how um how fast I was going to go or how the meet was going to go just because in January we usually stop swimming long course entirely to focus on uh conference meet and NCs so it was just a surprise to drop what did I drop like a second and a half I think in the 100 fly at trials so yeah. that was just crazy to me and then to drop another second and a half was even more surreal had you ever had a drop like that in your career I mean I dropped time when I was younger like any young kid does dropping oh eight seconds here oh 16 seconds here kind of thing but not not at this age so are you saying that there's potential for you to go 53 low if you can replicate this <laughs> i mean there's the ceiling is always you're gonna have to go out faster yeah, you're yeah. Have enough. <laughs> i'll have to go in like 24 <laughs> Well, good thing you don't have time. You know, you're not putting time goals. So we can see that 2250 back. I don't know, 4,800 fly, 20.50 free. I mean, I, I'm excited to see what you can do at NCs. Obviously, you had a great Big Tens. It's been a crazy year, I think. Like you said, everyone's just happy to see fast swimming on our end. And I think the swimmers are happy to be swimming fast. So what are some things you're shooting for at Big Ten or sorry, NCAAs coming up? Yeah, so definitely those backstroke um, times are definitely a goal. I of course, I want to go 22. I was 23-0 last year, and then I knew that NCs I could probably go under, and that didn't happen. And then the 50, I just want to go best time. I think that'd be really great after the season that we've had. The 48 barrier in the hunter fly, it's, it's been on my mind for a while. 
So I can't say I haven't thought about that. And then my last goal is that I really want to break 50 and the hunter back. Nice. Because um, there's no one that's done under 50 in the hunter fly and hunter back yet. So that's definitely my main goal going into next week. Oh, yeah, that's right. Natalie was what, 50.01, 100. Uh, she was right on the cusp. Or something like that in the 100 yeah, fly. Super close. And you were so close in the 100 back in that leadoff this weekend. Uh, do, you, do, you leave, do you leave a performance like that going, ah, almost had it? Yeah. And yeah. even in a Big Tens last year on the leadoff 100 back, I was still 50.04. So I was the, going into the relay at Big Tens. I was like, Rick. I just want to go under 50. He's like, okay, then go under 50. And I went 50.08. And I, I think it just drives him crazy just as much as it drives me crazy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, um, hmm. So what is about for Michigan as a team? What are some things you guys are hoping to accomplish at NC's coming up? I think we just want to do really well as well as we can do. And then definitely we have a lot of newcomers. We have, 12 swimmers on our team right now, and only three of us have previously been to an NC2A championships. So I think for them, it's just a really great learning opportunity, and hopefully some of them will make it back to finals, and I think that'd be a really great step for our young and up-and-coming team. Does Michigan, uh, the Michigan women or Michigan overall have any pre-NCAA traditions? I don't think we really have any pre-NC2A traditions. Uh, we have some Big Ten ones because that's when the whole team is involved. Um, but no, I wouldn't say for NCs we do. What do you do for Big Tens? It's a secret. <laughs> oh, they're secrets? Okay. <laughs> it's a secret when you're a freshman and then you know what to expect every year after that. All right, fair enough. Yeah. Um, so how many how many people do you have qualified for NTAs? Do you know? Um, 13. Okay. For the girls. I don't know about the men's side. Uh-huh. Any divers? One diver in 12 summers. Okay. That's a, that's enough to do damage for sure. I was on a team that almost got beat by uh, – we had we had five guys. It was like 2006. We had five people that qualified for the meet and didn't get to swim because it was like so many people. So like 20-plus 20 people. We almost got beat by a nine-person Arizona team. So anything can happen at NCAAs. Yeah. And obviously this is a, I mean, everything's crazy and weird, but I believe this year with NCs, you can do a red shirt or you could maybe continue on another year. Um, is this something you're considering or just taking it one, one meet, one season at a time? It's definitely something I've thought about. Yeah. It's interesting how they did it this year. So regardless of whether or not you're swimming this year is still considered as a whole, a red shirt year. Yeah. And then if you choose to swim your fifth year, um, you can do that. So I've, I've kind of thought about it just in regards to my long season, like how long I plan on swimming for. But I think with COVID and everything, I've had to kind of reevaluate those plans. So I'm not totally sure where I stand now, but I'm definitely considering using up all five years. What drew you to NCs? What drew you to um, choose the big decision choosing Michigan over McGill? Well, I think I might have gone to U of T if I had stayed in Canada. Tennessee? Tennessee? <laughs> No, University of Toronto. I know, I know. Um, we love Byron. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, no, I think just the support and the academics and the athletics combined in America is just so unparalleled. And I think I just wanted to expand my swimming, um, just like the atmosphere of it and kind of have something new. When you're swimming in Canada, you kind of 
are around the same spheres. You're always racing the same people that you've grown up swimming with. So I think I really wanted to change things up. But then going back to the support, it's, it's like unparalleled compared to what we have in Canada. And then, of course, I wanted to be really close to home just because I'm a big homebody. Mm-hmm. So usually if it wasn't COVID, I go home. I'd say like monthly or every other month and kind of just go and vegetate and just enjoy being home. So I think those are my main draws to Michigan for sure. My parents were living in Ottawa when I was in Montreal and I'd go home for the weekends and do my laundry. And they always ask, where are your towels? I said, I, what do you mean towels? My towels, they don't get dirty. They used to criticize me when you're a freshman, it's pretty nasty. <laughs> but um, no, but, but seriously, um, you, you're right. I was telling these guys that the Olympics right now just announced that no, there are going to be no spectators there in, in the audience. And I was saying, well, that was kind of like swimming in Canada. There weren't that many meets that I went to where there were spectators. So I'm like, this is cool. I'll be fine. So. Yeah, funny story like that is um, me and a couple other people, uh, we went to the U.S. Open stop in Indianapolis in, I think, October or November of last year. And one of my friends was like, this atmosphere sucks. Like, there's no one here and it's so quiet. And I was like, this is what our Olympic trials are like. So she thought that was really funny. It's true. But, but at the same time, Canada has one of the youngest hottest um you know women's program at least internationally it, it's doing amazing with the training centers in, in ontario and on bc etc so i mean talk to that talk about when baron get the history of the the waves of canadian swimming over the last 40 years but talk about how you've experienced it now as a swimmer what's it been like to, to, to train with you know kayla and penny and you know these people yeah it's definitely great to train with them and we're all the same age so before i came back to michigan in october uh, I, was, I was actually swimming at the center in Toronto, so it was mm. definitely nice to kind of bond with those girls and kind of get to train with them, which I haven't really got to do a lot in the past. And then we are one of the youngest teams on the international stage, and I think that's really great. Um, the example I always use is the 400 free relay. We were the only team where all five of us were under 19. Like, we were 19 and 18, so we were all oh. under 20. Yeah, so that just definitely shows that we have a lot of room for improvement and a lot of growth especially with this extra year for the Olympics. So hopefully um, we can do some damage this summer. No, it's certainly exciting. And when you look at a team like that, or especially countries that come up, we saw it like with South Africa, with the men's, when they came up, they won golds and in the relay and and they had a lot of good swimmers for a few more Olympiads. But I'm curious if you think that this is going to be a staying position for the Canadian women, or is this just, serendipity that you have five or six really great swimmers around the same age group that's a really great point um but i think we we do some of both i think is that we just all lucked out that we were all around the same age but we do have some great up-and-coming swimmers emma croinen was 15 and she qualified for the world's team and i think she came like 12th in the 403 which that's a big deal and then there's a lot of others and then especially the men's team um most of them are quite young too. So I think it'll bode as well for definitely Paris and LA and beyond. What's the vibe like on the Canadian national team? Oh, it's super fun. I mean, we all have a great time together and we always do like a pre travel camp. So we do, we were in Toyota for two weeks before we went to world. And then in May, we also have another like one week camp. So they definitely present us lots of opportunities to like bond and have fun and get to know each other. What's the Canadian uh, TikTok video going to be for the medley behind the block? I'm not on TikTok, so I don't know. 
Well, so one of the other teammates better pick it up. We got to call Kylie. Get Kylie <laughs> on there. Oh, yeah. I'm sure Kylie and, or Kyla and Penny will definitely get on that. But. You know what I'm just saying? So last, look, when we spoke to Enith um, Brigitte, she, one of the reasons she chose this one for Holland is because Curacao was not able to support her, not able to fund her, get her to meet, just give her a, a, a literary supporter financially and with her staff. Brian, you've been a national team for the U.S. You know, Maggie, you're currently, uh, I'm assuming, A-carded. This, I would love to hear from the two of you about how each of these major swimming nations support their athletes um, on a you know monthly stipend. It's is it enough to get by, but not? You're are you carded and a scholarship to, to to Michigan, Brian? What was like for you? I just want to give people advice where these two countries treat their athletes because it's really important for you to be able to keep on swimming. Go first, man. Yeah, for sure. So I'm currently on the senior international carding, which is the highest level of carding that we get. Um, definitely nothing compared to the States from what I've heard from some of my American teammates. Um, and then as far as carding and being on a scholarship at university goes, if you're in the NC2A system, you actually only get your carding the three or four months you're out of school, um, from like May to August. So they don't really fund you while you're in school because you're getting money to attend school from your school. Hmm. I've never even heard that word before carding. Um, but yeah, so in the, uh, thank you for, for enlightening me. Um, yeah, I mean, my perspective is based on years ago when I swam, but the, the U S still has, uh, something similar to the athlete partnership agreement, which was, you know, basically, you know, the national governing body, USA swimming is your sponsor. So, um, and through that, there's a contract that, you know, we, there's, um, you know, uh, financial incentive to then show up for different meets. So like, you know, you have obligations. If you accept the money, you got to show up at X number of meets and you have to do certain, uh, like at least meet a minimum number of, you know, either press or, you know, uh, charitable events or something on behalf of USA Swimming. So do, do a public appearances. Um, and I don't know how much it, I don't know how much it is now, but, um, I'm sure it increased the, the first time they did it, it was like $30,000 a year, I think. Um, but with no stipulations about like, well, I mean, that, sorry, um, Maggie, you mentioned you can get it. You like funding after your college season and everything that was a pro sponsorship. So you didn't, I believe, so I don't think you get that money if you were in college, um, so I think that's the difference. There may be some, there is some financial funding, I believe for, uh, college swimmers that are on the national team. Uh, and it's like capped at a certain amount though. So you can get funding for that sort of thing. I don't know how much it is. So they kind of have like two separate pools, one of the non-professional athletes and one for the professional. I was going to say, talking about those pools and those levels, that, that's one thing that where I come from, you have to have achieved to get funding after. So you have to have meddled at Worlds or break something, and then you get funding and sponsors, and that's kind of reverse mentality. But that's what happens. At least in Canada, if I'm correct, they still have several strata of, of the funding, right? And, and yes, you have to achieve, but it's not as, as, as like you don't have – you can work your way up through the system almost, you know, and be on the junior team. And is the U.S. have a similar idea, or is it just top six – each event, national team, how, how, how easy is it? How much support do you get at the grassroots? Because we talked about the future of Canada. And maybe that's why Canada is having this grassroots support. I don't know. Yeah, I honestly can't answer for national junior team support and things. I mean, I know that there there are there there is some 
support. Uh, I don't know how much of that is actually like financial or even could be. It's probably, you know, um, access to camps, uh, access to kind of, for lack of a better, all-star teams, you know, joining up to go on, on team trips and, and things like that. Um, you know, so, so there is a focus on that, but the incentives are different depending on right. which, which group you're in and what you're, what you can, can legally, you know, accept anyway. So, well, one thing that I'm curious about Maggie is the, the professional swimming and professionalism in, in Olympic sports in general that don't have, unless you're, unless you're like league MVP of the ISL or an Olympic champion, um, you know, those are different levels of money. Like as a world champion, yeah, there's a cash bonus from FINA that you get, and that's pretty sweet, but that doesn't necessarily sustain throughout the, the, the year or years to come. So what I'm curious about is like, um, it seems as though there are a lot of people either doing this naturally or, or starting to figure out that there's an opportunity for them to earn money by growing their social presence. Um, I'm an introvert. I don't naturally gravitate toward those types of platforms. These guys know that I don't just like outwardly share a bunch of stuff. It doesn't just flow out of me, but like, you know, it is, it does make you more appealing if you want to, you know, sustain your swimming career in a sport, the finances aren't exactly flowing everywhere. So, I mean, what do you think? Do do you think about that at all and, and how that might influence, you know, the future of your swimming career? Yeah, definitely. Especially since like the, creation of ISL. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely hoping that's still around by the time I'm done my NC2A eligibility. Cause I think first of all, it'll just be super fun. And then like the bonus of the money and becoming a professional athlete is just like a cherry on top, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. as far as like, my FINA money goes that I won from world, I don't think I've like definitely isn't enough to sustain you for very long. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just have it in the bank and I haven't, I haven't touched it yet. Yeah. Good. Yeah, looking at ISL and the prize money, I mean, I was impressed to see that Barrel was taking home 190000 And obviously, Caleb had two hundred ninety or almost 300000 there. So like you said, we I think we're all fans here. We hope it's around. I know there's been questions about how long it can financially be viable for. But you could be very versatile in such a format with your diverse you know, events that you can do. I think underwaters are your strong suits. I guess the main question is, are you going to be drafted by the Toronto Titans? And what events would you do in ISL? Yeah, so, I mean, I've, I've thought about it. I mean, I love watching ISL. I mean, it was really great uh, during the shutdown last fall when it we gave us something to watch because sports were slowly kind of creeping their way back into the media. So that was super great. And then as far as events, I mean, I'm open to doing pretty much anything sprint related. Uh, I always enjoy doing things that I would consider off events. Like I had to beg Rick to let me do a hundred breasts in a dual meet, which I thought was super fun. Um, but I mean, I would just be excited to kind of do a bunch of different events and kind of get the college experience again, but on a more professional level. What's your hundred? I am going to be like, that'd be nice. What? Yeah. I mean, I haven't raced 100 IM yards. I'm like, that's not really a race. I mean, it should, I'm surprised it's not. I know. Um, but I like a 56, I think, in practice my freshman year. Didn't really know what that meant at the time, but I think 100 IM would be a great addition to the NC2A schedule. Definitely. And how about uh, fly skins? How do you think you'd hold up against some of the ISL swimmers? Yeah. So I think the thing with skins is that I could probably do the three of them, but I feel like. I would need to work a lot more on my speed to get out and get up into the last 
round or two in order to kind of keep going. Do you do sets like that? Like a lot of athletes we talked to said, yeah, well, those three fifties on three minutes, we do 12 of them on two minutes and things like that. I'm not too worried. What do you do? Super intense sets like that? Do you like, what's your, what's that? What's a typical Rick Bishop set that he'll work with you when you're really honing in uh, your, you know, your hundred speed for, I don't know. Fly. Um, so usually if I'm doing like hundred speed, it'll be race pace. So yeah. that's like, a bunch of 25s, um, fly and underwater, and then a couple 50s, um, like super fast fly on like a minute. So that's like a typical race pace 100 day set for me. And what are you going? Um, so I did one on Saturday. It was um, like 225s from a dive and then 250s from a push. And my 250s was like 25.9 and then 24.9. So they were okay. Just the whole point was to make sure the second 50 was faster, uh, which it was. Um, but usually I like to keep my push 50 fast around like 24 mid. Do you do a pretty good mix of training each stroke? Uh, I know there's a lot of butterfly swimmers who don't actually train that much fly. Yeah, I'm one of, I'm one of those. Um, I did a lot of fly like growing up. I used to do a lot of hundreds in club, but ever since I've come to Michigan, I haven't done a single hundred fly in practice. Um, but usually like threshold days or like kind of mostly threshold days, I would say um, I focus on backstroke and free. And then it's usually like the short, fast USRPT or race pace type set yeah. that I'll do uh, fly. Mm. Do you have a, a go-to set that once you do it in the lead up to a meet, you know that you're ready? Oh, I don't think I really do. I mean, swimming with Rick right before meet, it's relatively new. Like, I mean, the only experience I've had with him was right before Worlds. Um, so I feel like that'll be something more to test out this summer. But usually we're pretty in tune with each other. So whatever he writes, it's usually works out well. Now, is that pretty one-sided? What's the dynamic like uh, working with your coach, Rick? Do you have much say and do you offer your opinion and kind of guide the training program or what's the what's the dynamic like it's very much a partnership i would say i mean i usually offer my i always usually offer my opinion whether he takes that into account or not depending on the day um but it's very much what are you feeling today how are you feeling i was thinking this for saturday what do you think about that so it's really like a tandem and i think it really works well for us so you walk on deck on the pool on Saturday, and I'm Rick, and I say, Maggie, today we've got 21's best average, and you say, is that your face? I Well, first of all, you would never make me do that. Usually, I'm pretty good about, I guess it's from my aerobic base and club, but usually if it's a set and it's just boring or something hard like that, like I'll just do it. Like I don't really complain or say anything about it. I'll just do it. Um, but he usually wouldn't write something like that for me anyways. What are your favorite type of sets that you've been doing this past year? I'm sure your training's been altered, maybe a little less time in the water. What are some sets that you've really enjoyed and, and maybe did some surprise you that you liked? Yeah, so when I was in Toronto, they do this super cool thing called um, 
weight swim combo. So we have a bunch of weight facilities in the Toronto pool just because it's huge and it's so beautiful there. Um, so there's one on deck. So it's you'll do like a kick or a pull focused like round of a fast paced set. And then you'll go and work that part of your body in the gym. And then you'll do that a couple times and you'll just go from in the weight room. And then when you come back and swim in it, then you can kind of really feel those muscles working. So I really liked that. Um, and they also use the swim bench a lot, which I haven't had much experience with, but I thought that was really cool. And then as far as training at Michigan goes, um, power days are always super fun. Like you just feel like you're moving the water and you can really feel that in your stroke um, later on. And then another set we do is like a rainbow set. So since you guys know Mike Bottom and everyone uses the color system, yeah. which I was so confused about when I got to Michigan, <laughs> especially since it's not like in a rainbow, they just kind of designated random colors to random speeds. So I was like, okay. Um, but we do a rainbow set where it's kind of like you go from super slow to like 50 pace. So you just kind of get the range of everything. And I really like that a lot. So in the first set that you talked about, are, are you actually like getting out of the pool, drying off? Is this all happening in the same session where you're back and forth to the weight room and to the pool? So like drying off, going to the gym, doing that for X period of time and then back to the pool and getting in and swimming? Yeah. So it'd be like one round of like fast pull 25s, get out in the weight room. You do um, pull-ups, med ball slams, push-ups. Um, so that kind of thing. Or then you do like an underwater kicking set. And then you do squats or um, like high jumps or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like variations on that. Mm -hmm. And then you do that like a couple times. Mm -hmm. And then what's, what's power workout. So I, I, I know what we did at Auburn for power workouts, but which was like, go to the gym, come to the pool, like straight from gym to pool, put on a t-shirt and do something like 20 to 30 sprints of varying distance. Nothing more than a 25. What, what, what's power workout like at Michigan? So we do power three, two or three mornings a week. Um, so it's like we have a pulley system. So we usually use that a lot. And then we have the power racks, um, which are, they're kind of, they're harder, but like you're not doing as much swimming and it's, you're really getting the full extent of the power portion of practice. And these are the weighted racks, not the buckets, right? Yeah. We don't yeah. use buckets at all. Um which is funny because I got a power tower when I was swimming at home um, during the quarantine and it was a bucket. And I was like, how do I know how much weight I'm doing if I'm just putting in water? You put I, weight I, in the water. Like mini dumbbells <laughs> in the bucket so then I could kind of keep a measurement of that. Uh -huh. yeah. Are, <laughs> yeah. Are you are you good at the power rack? I am. Uh, officially this year I started to do the full rack. So I thought that was super exciting because I kind of graduated from doing – like five or six plates to like the full, like 10. That's a hundred pounds, right? See, I've always asked, I'm like, how much is it? And then Rick's like, he'll just make up a number. And I'm like, that doesn't, it doesn't help me. <laughs> <You're precise. laughs> yeah. It's interesting to hear about power sets and obviously the use of resisted swimming is I think becoming more and more universal. Obviously it's been around for a while from like Brian said, wearing t-shirts. I remember wearing shoes and junk like that. Um, growing up swimming, I hope those practices are kind of removed because I don't think they have as much merit as a power tower or a resisted rack. But listening to you and talking about power and speed, it still sounds like you're trying to harness that speed. Where do you feel like you still need to improve, particularly on your butterfly speed? Well, tonight, actually, I spent a fair amount of time fixing my start 
And then we got a fair good fair amount of good work done. And then I found out that I had to adjust my underwater kick count um, because I was getting way more power off the block. So diving in has always been kind of a weak spot of mine. So we're slowly improving that. And I think just the speed going into the turn is something else that Rick has told me to work on. Yeah, you mentioned underwaters, and obviously at that world, you had an amazing turn, amazing underwaters. I mean, we've seen it in a lot of your races. What are some things that give you such powerful underwater dolphin kicks? Is it something you think about? Is it innate characteristics that you have? What do you attribute it to? I think it just like butterfly kick came just so much more naturally to me. I was at a training camp in Florida um, with the race club one time. And Gary Sr. was like, okay, we're going to test your kicks. So he had me do an all-out 50 free kick on, I don't even know, like 10 minutes or something. And then an all-out 50 fly kick. And my free kick was just four seconds slower than my fly kick. And I feel like it's just always been that way. Like long course kick sets, I can go like 30 point in a 50 fly kick with a board. But like free, I can't, I can barely go under 40 seconds. So I feel like I've just been more natural when it came to me like that and I really just enjoy the calmness and the quiet um, when I'm swimming underwater um, now in college we always have the underwater speaker on so it's not as peaceful um, but I always just like to do underwater to kind of just clear my head and just enjoy swimming do you remember Sergio talking heralding schooling's kick especially that last 25 in Rio how powerful his kick was and that kid was no, there's no way he's gonna get beaten with that kick and we're seeing it now with david curtis i mean david curtis is kicking that 53 is ridiculously engine behind what's your kick like what do you work on your kick once you surface and you're swimming what do you focus on i don't think i really focus too much on my kick once i start to swim mm. um i think i've always just had just a lot weaker upper body strength than i would have liked so i feel like i was always focusing on that as opposed to kind of my kick and then just kind of putting it all together. But I don't really focus too much on my kick when I'm swimming fly. I'm, I'm, I want to switch gears a little bit to something that's, it, it's, it's a Mike Bottom. Mike Bottom story is a legendary. We've had stories from Gary Hall, from Deirdre Gagne, Mike Kavik, Mike Bottom himself. All these ways of Mike has just worked. He's a behavioral psychologist, right? And way he's worked to have that really help motivate you and, and you know, uh, send Gary for pizza when he was hungry after warm up and almost missed the race to things like this. Uh, and Michigan has had a very set cultural phases. And we had Gustavo and Gus Borges on together, and they were comparing and contrasting the what Michigan was like in the 90s with John and what it's like now with Mike. And I just love to know what is the culture now in Michigan now in 2021? Um, you know, what do you, Mike's all about developing a human. Loving this, loving yourself, you know, identifying yourself as a human first, then a swimmer, you know, and just talk about how do you guys work on just being good all around people and dealing with all the unknowns and stress. I'm just fascinated with the 2021 Rick Bishop, Mike Bottom philosophies. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have anything to compare it to, probably like uh, Gus and Gus, but um, definitely Rick and Mike, they really care about us individually as people. And then swimmers are, we're always second. I mean, they're always like, how are you, how are you feeling? Like they're kind of, they're just interested in us in our daily lives and yeah. wanting us to be the best people that we can be. And I think that's just really emphasized. And especially with Rick and Mike with three kids each, like they know what it's like to be a parent and to be in that position um, and to be raising kids. Like Rick has kids 
our age, their their college age, and then Mike has a lot younger kids. So I feel like they've been able to take their personal experiences and apply that to us and definitely emphasize the importance of what happens after swimming and just being a great person all around and how that will impact everyone in the team culture. At the same time, I figured it pretty darn tough on deck. Like you, there's no room for slacking or being late or, or being abandoning or not food. I mean, I'm pretty certain it's pretty tough, aren't they? as well yeah they're definitely they're definitely hard on us when they need to be i mean i feel like sometimes they aren't hard enough um just because i feel like lots of people have been able to kind of be a little bit more lax in their processes and their kind of care toward the sport um but i think if they're yelling at us to do something it's definitely warranted um but that's not without their our best intentions in mind was it was it Somebody who said that when Dave Durden's quiet is when you know he's serious. When he goes, hmm, and when he's quiet, that's when you have to worry about him. Uh, what's Maggie McNeil like in practice? We, we talked to Shane Cassis and he's talking about, you know, he's very energetic and he likes to race and have a laugh. At the same time, he puts it down and nobody's going to beat him. What's Maggie McNeil like in practice? Are you keep to yourself or do you like to like, oh, you want you want to go? Let's go. And it's like a 25-yard warm-up or something. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I just have such a super competitive personality. So, I mean, that's always driving me. I always want to be the first one at the wall. I always, everyone makes fun of me because I'm like, I always have to be the first one to finish social kick and just all these little things that, but that's just like how, that's just the way I work. Um, But no, I love to have a good time with my teammates and kind of just enjoy the process. I'm usually like fooling around or something, but it's when I'm quiet, that there's definitely something wrong, but that, that rarely happens. That's like Brian. He gets mad at Luke and I because we social kick too slow. You we do you know at 50 pace. I don't know what he wants out of us. You guys aren't even kicking. <laughs> we <laughs> no, not, we are not. Not at all. Okay, Maggie, define social kick. Define a social kick. What is it? Social kick. Define Fly kick it. on 32. <laughs> social kick is where you basically you just kick with a buddy and you catch up on each other's lives. I mean, we have such busy schedules and that's kind of the only time where you're not connected to your phone you're not connected to social media of some kind you can really kind of just focus and listen to other people and kind of have a deep conversation which we don't get much of these days that's why i don't hang out in social kick with luke because he brings his phone <laughs> we said ig living it's impressive <laughs> this is my time I'm with you, Maggie. It's peaceful. Come on, Luke. Put the phone down. I know. I want to be underwater one day. It doesn't take 10 minutes to do a 200. Oh, see, that's my kind of social kick. (laughs) Full fast. (laughs) You got to milk it. You got to milk it. Um, I want to tease these Americans one more. You you talk about things that moving to America, you just were a bit confused about. And I was as well. Like, I remember swimming in yards for the first time and not knowing, like, a thousand. Why would you swim a thousand? What's that about? You know, or that some of the pools are crazy, stands and stuff. What are some funny things about American swimming that Americans don't know about that that we in Canada we got used to? I don't know. Besides the yards issue, what do you think? The latest thing I've thought of is that I'm always counting for one of my friends who's a distant swimmer. She's she likes to say that I'm her lucky counter because she always swims fast when I count for her. Um, but I'd never done it before. Um, and first of all, I didn't realize. Like, first of all, I was like, how long is a 1650? (laughs) And then the next thing is in Canada, we're not allowed to stick the, like the counters in the pool. Like you have to put them on the side. And I'm like, how can anyone see that? Yeah. Um, (laughs) 
Usually um, it's just like Rick loves to make fun of all the Canadian stereotypes that he can think of in like a day. He'll just throw them all at me and I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> and then I talk, we also make fun of that too. Does anybody actually know the origin of the 1650 anyway? Because it's not a mile. No, nope. and I don't know why you call it the mile if it's not a mile. I don't know. No also, knows. also, in Canada and with international swimming, when you can't put the counter in the water, does anybody actually look at the counter then? Did you look at the counter when you were doing distance events in Canada? Uh, I, don't think I, we ever, I don't think I ever saw them at high enough meets where I would get a counter, so I was always just counting for myself. Um, but, like, I feel like if you're swimming distance at, like, the Olympic or world level, like, wouldn't you know to just count anyways? I don't know. I've never been an Olympic final. Yeah, we're talking to the wrong audience here, I think. <laughs> Alex holding, wraps this. Yeah, like holding 57s or whatever they hold. <laughs> yeah. Luke just caught it there. We saw in the ISL, miscounting can happen in the 400 still. So you never know. You never know. No, it's totally true. But, but you know what's too? In Canada, they, they 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 speak two languages on deck. So I'm sure you're yeah. used to, to, to having um you know the announcements in French and you actually mm -hmm. have the workouts in French and sometimes you know do papillon this kind of thing. So that's one thing that you have to learn. And there and there are different ways of we calling our sets out in Canada than the Americans call it out. I don't know it's 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 the, the swimming language is a little bit off, different. Yeah. Now I remember I spent a week with um Claude Saint Jean. Yeah, uh, he coached me for a little bit. Yeah, and um, my coach loved this, and he was like, "Your snorkel is called your tuba in yeah. French," and I didn't know that. So I've always enjoyed going to Quebec because I feel like I learn a new word in French every time I go. <laughs> Grab your tuba, let's do it. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, Maggie, we'll finish with just a couple of rapid fire questions. Okay. What's the hardest race in swimming? Um, long course, it's 200 back, short course, it's turn or fly. When's the last time you saw a 200 back long course? 2018. Okay. So you have experience. Okay. Good. <laughs> Don't just say it because people say it. Oh, <laughs> I saw every event. So, I mean, I have some experience. Okay. Olympic gold or world record? Okay, I, I can't pick between that. <laughs> you have to. This That's is true. World record. Who's the fastest underwater kicker ever? Me? Yeah. ISL skins, you get to pick the stroke. Which one is Back it? Backstroke. Hunterfly final in Tokyo. No one in the stands. It's crickets. You rip the semifinal swim. Feeling great. Standing behind the blocks. What's going through your head? Oh, my God. I have to go. You have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> Where are you going? I have to swim back. <laughs> Maggie, thanks for hanging out. We look forward to watching you uh, swim fast at NCAAs. And then, of course, the, uh, the provisional uh, invitation to the Olympics. Uh, we know that you're going to go take advantage of that and uh, and do some damage this summer. So love to talk to you again soon. And thanks for hanging out with us. Thank you so much. I had fun. That's, awesome. That's it for this episode of Social Kick. We'll see y'all later. Hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you're enjoying Social Kick, tell your friends about it. And be sure to tell us what you liked by leaving a comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Follow us on Instagram at the Social Kick Podcast. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Social Kick, and you can find all of our content on our website at thesocialkick.com.